Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode six. This is Ryan. And this is Edmund. And Gary. Today we are talking about On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was 1969, and it featured George Lazenby as James Bond. So I guess I'll set up a bit of the, uh, the plot description here. We have at the beginning of the film, Bond is investigating Blofeld and pursuing uh, to find Spectre. And we go from this and soon find that Bond is reassigned or will be reassigned, but is being taken off of Operation Bedlam, which is going after Blofeld and, and Spectre. And Bond, of course, does not accept this and continues to go after Blofeld uh, on his own, hoping that he will be reassigned. And in the end, is able to pursue this and we get uh, a, a sort of um, game of Bond trying to go after Blofeld and getting caught up in things as a result. Yeah, that sounds about right. And in fact, in this one, there's often like a, a the villain's plot here is almost secondary. It's like the, the villain has to have a plot, but it's really about Bond tracking down Blofeld. The plot only be, uh, the villain only reveals his plot much, much later into the film, and it's just there so he can have something that Bond has to stop. Yes, that's right. It's more about uh, what Bond is doing, and uh, you know he's initiating it. And it's almost like the plot is just what Blofeld happens to be doing at the time. And of course, that's what makes it sort of a, a bigger issue for M and the Secret Service and the uh, government organizations and so on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, also, of course, I mean, just as, you know, the, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is this case of, you know, yeah, it's sort of incidental that, uh, you know, there's, the, of course, the, the usual plot to uh, hold the world at ransom, but, uh, you know, but Bond isn't really focused on that. He just happens to drop into it. And, uh, you know, perhaps the most in, intriguing part of this film is, you know, that does, does get introduced right at the beginning is um, the, uh, you know, immediately running into training. Tracy, the uh, Diana Diana Riggs role as uh, you know, a, I think arguably or certainly she's usually listed as one of one of the top Bond girls ever, and certainly the one who uh, affects him far more than any other. Um, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a interesting uh, you know sort of uh, dance that they go through. Him you know saving her from drowning herself to being set up by you know having her her dad the crime boss. Draco, um, basically trying to throw Bond at her um, to, uh, you know, them actually falling in love and getting married, and then, uh, of course, the ending, which we will save till the end. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and so, I mean, it, it's, it, it's interesting how the, the film is really, you know, sort of, a, you know, as much about, uh, you know, Bond navigating all this as it is about, uh, you know, him taking this plot down. Yes, absolutely. This is a film, unlike most of the others, that has a very uh, interesting and sort of complex web of characters and gives you a real sort of ensemble feel to the cast, where we have something of a different take on Bond now with Lazenby in the lead and uh, uh, Tracy or Contessa Teresa, you mentioned, played by Diana Rigg. Blofeld here is played by Telly Savalas which is a very different take on, on Blofeld 
in many ways. He's sort of a, a more aggressive in your face Blofeld than what we've seen so far. Yeah, uh, uh, James Bond fighting Donald Pleasance wouldn't have been a very fair match. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, this is uh, this is a, a Blofeld who will not stand in the background and hide behind his hat. Although he does have the cat. Yeah. Uh, this is the the Blofeld who will uh, very much be in the in the forefront and very much be uh, active and uh, get into uh, fisticuffs and the the whole thing. Oh yeah. He chases. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And we also have Gabrielle Frazetti playing Draco, uh, Tracy's father, who is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a crime boss. And it's interesting because they sort of set up Bond and Draco and Tracy as a team of their own, rather than having the um, the MI6 team with uh, you know M and Q and Bond and and sometimes others, sometimes Felix fitting in, but instead of a lot of it being based on the team of the spies, it's based on this other grouping of people with uh, a crime boss and his daughter. I think there's that one guy who works for the Secret Service, but he gets killed off. He never has virtually any dialogue. We never introduce him or anything. Yeah. So we don't right. we don't really care at all. They they don't really get us into that. Yeah, they just give him <laughs> that, that distinctive blonde hair so we can pick about pick him out in the crowd. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that was uh, Bernard Horsfall's character. It was, it was interesting to see him in this because he's done so much British TV. But yeah, they don't uh, they don't give him a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, one thing that got to me watching it this time was you know because he's you know he he shows up when Bond's breaking into the you know into Blofeld's lawyer's office and he's on the Draco construction site. I mean, I'm sort of thinking you know he's one of Draco's men. You know, and then it isn't until you know when actually when they when when they get up to the uh, the mountain retreat and he and he uh, he gets killed that it's like you know oh he oh okay he is one one of one of Bond's men. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And it, the actor is someone who's good, who can easily handle uh, lots of dialogue and do it well, but it was just not something they they did with that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the more uh, Draco's, Draco's crew are more interesting. <clears throat> we only really meet them in the beginning, when they fight Bond, kidnap him, get beaten up by him, and then they join in with him at the end in the final assault. So it's like they were interesting characters, we just never got to know them at all. Yeah. That's right. Uh, it gives you um, a bit of the feeling of uh, uh, sort of a different style of 1960s spy film. Uh, where, yes, some of the Bond elements are there and they work very well, but it has uh, a little bit of the feel of some of the, um, uh, you know, the spy who came in for the, from the cold or, you know, these other kinds of uh, spy thrillers that were, that were a big deal in the 60s. Uh, you know, it feels almost like it's bringing in some of those elements with uh, the dynamic of... Um, there being the the back and forth between uh, Bond and Draco, where there's this uh, um, almost negotiation over how this is uh, how this is going to work, and that alliance being built, uh, yeah. and that was something that I think is fairly unusual in the Bond films, but it was really neat to see it there. 
Yeah, I mean, I should say that all of this is almost directly from the book. This is possibly the closest film adaptation of an Ian Fleming novel that exists in the Bond in the Bond series. Pretty much everything in the book is in the movie. Um, all these characters, all these plot elements uh, are all there. And it, it helps that Fleming was writing this after the movies had already started. So he already knew kind of, he, he got a sense of the, the more fantastical elements of the world. Yeah, they, so, <clears throat> he wrote it when they were working on Dr. No, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So he already had an idea of what, where things were going and he could sort of tailor it a little. But again, he, he deliberately made it a more personal story. And Peter Hunt, the director, uh, who had previously been uh, the film editor and second unit director, really wanted to to stick to the text of the book it was he was very insistent that they simply follow the book in this case and yeah, i think he, he knew it he knew what he had and he knew it was a good story mm-hmm. that's right and as an editor i think he was particularly good at doing the uh, the transition from how sequences in the book will you know transpire on film Yes. You know, he definitely brought some skills from being actually a very good editor who did some uh, creative editing work and was able to, for example, do um, a lot of work on sections of From Russia With Love in order to make them make more sense and be more clear. Uh, so that's the sort of approach that he was able to bring here. And yeah, not to mention his abilities with fight sequences, his way of sort of pulling frames out and thus speeding up the image on the screen and making it feel more visceral and, and more action-packed. It was definitely an innovative style, and it worked really well for him. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, and also, I mean, it, it is, this is kind of the, you know, this became a, sort of, I wouldn't say a tradition, but, it, you know, it certainly became a sort of staple of the series. And, you know, John John Glenn was then editing and second unit directing on this film, and later went, you know, and then went on to also direct later in the series. So, you know, they, right, they, he, he started as an editor as well, so that gave him the yeah. skill set. And actually, yeah. I read just the other day, he also, he also directed Space Precinct. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> I didn't realize that's where he ended it, pretty much, but... Oh, well. <laughs> Space Precinct. So we could add that as another Jerry Anderson connection. Yeah. Yes. To the <laughs> Much as we might wish to forget. <laughs> yes, indeed. He was actually, John Glenn was in town recently, but I had a, uh, an event that night I couldn't go. But he was doing a, 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 a talk series about his work on the Bond films. Oh, very nice. I really would have lo- would have loved to have gone, but I couldn't. The one other actor I'd like to mention on here is George Baker. Uh, just because he is um, such a well-known British actor, uh, you might remember him as being uh, one of the many actors to portray number two on The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he was also a little a little bit later, he was uh, in I, Claudius as uh, Tiberius, one of the four emperors portrayed, uh, which was a very big role for him. And he um, did uh, a large number of... Uh, of roles on various uh, various TV TV programs and the like, and uh, was quite quite well known for uh, for a number of them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, he, uh, Baker played Hillary Bray. Uh, Sir Hillary Bray, the uh, the what, what's his title again? At uh, genealogist. College of Arms, genealogist at the College of Arms. Yeah, he he was <laughs> uh, a herald, right? Herald and ge- genealogist. And uh, he actually added his role in the film. He also provided the dubbing for George Lazenby because uh, when Lazenby was uh, going undercover at Blofeld's um, mountain fortress, he was supposed to be behaving like he was this guy who worked for the College of Arms, and he would have had to adopt a more posh accent. And Peter Hunt tried to do apparently. He couldn't do no. 
<laughs> so in the end, there was dubbing in this movie, uh, yeah. and it was Bond that was dubbed, and okay. there was additional dubbing beyond that because Mark Ange Draco uh, and I think his girlfriend were also dubbed. Yes, Dra- Draco was dubbed. That's right. Yeah, Draco was dubbed. But but in addition to the villain, which was typical, or I mean a side character, Bond himself was dubbed in this movie. Yeah. Fortunately, <laughs> I think this is the last of the series dubbing that we're going to see for a while. Okay. Yes, I think that may be right. That's right. When Bond is pretending to be Sir Hillary Bray, the actor who played Sir Hillary Bray was dubbing in the voice of Bond. That's right. Uh, yeah. But okay. and there and there was one scene where it switches from George Baker's voice to George Lazenby's voice and then back to George Baker's voice. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, yes, when he uh, when he looks at when he looks at himself in the mirror and cleans himself up in between oh, yes. encounters, <laughs> he switches back to his own voice. Yeah, he applauds himself for being such a stud, basically. And, yeah, and then and then turns to uh, to continue, and the voice is back. Yeah, <laughs> and then of course when he's discovered, it's back to his own voice. Yes. Yeah, of course. I mean, that, that was one thing I, that I kind, I kind of liked in this as well was, uh, you know, yeah, that, uh, no, I mean, he, you know, he was, was doing a, a, a pretty pretty good job of impersonating him, except, you know, his, his downfall was that he, he just couldn't resist all these beautiful women, which... <laughs> well, actually, though, in the movie, if I'm not mistaken, his downfall is he, he suggests something to Blofeld. And mm-hmm. Blofeld tells him he's wrong. But the joke is that that was the information that was given to him by Sir Hillary Bray in the first place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was like, the thing that always seemed odd to me. No, I like that because he was undone in by his own people gave him the wrong information. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's like yeah. the real Sir Hillary Bray would know it. No, he didn't. Exactly. <laughs> that was quite funny. I, I really enjoyed that bit. Yeah, no, I was actually, yeah, because Blofeld also mentions it at one point that, <laughs> that he didn't think Sir Hillary would have been running around to all of the all of those rooms. Or yeah, Bond. that's certainly yeah. true. <laughs> and, and of course, it's worth noting that it's like uh, Bond could only go undercover as Sir Hillary Bray if Blofeld had never met him before, uh-huh. uh, and sort of one of those things that everyone sort of overlooks for the sake of the film. But Blofeld and Bond faced off in the previous movie, and in this movie, they have no recollection of that meeting or. It's as if there's never been a meeting before between the two of them. Yes, yeah. they've met for the first time twice. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not to mention, yes, we know it wasn't the internet age, but yes, I think mean, they, they, they could have had photographs. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's helped along by the fact that we have two completely different actors playing the roles. <laughs> exactly. So it's as if they really are meeting for the first time, so why not just go with it? And I think everybody does go with it, so it's, yeah. not a, it's a continuity gaffe of epic proportions, but they ignore it. Yeah. So we, yeah, we, and we it's ignored the, as well. Yeah. The, the film is so strong that it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, we get this dynamic between uh, Bond undercover as Sir Hillary Bray with Blofeld, which is, you know, an interesting dynamic that builds up. And, you know, if you've uh, seen the film before, you can quite easily, you know, you can tell when Blofeld starts to become suspicious and so on. And then you get the dynamic between Bond as Bond with Blofeld. And again, it's a really neat dynamic there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that um, they sort of set things up with uh, sort of one grouping with uh, Tracy and Draco, and then, uh, uh, you know, end up with, uh, with um, this sort of different situation with Blofeld and the like, and then later bring that first group of characters back in. That was something I quite enjoyed in this. Yep. Um, you know, that was just something that, uh, that 
that worked well. It was interesting. And they just had that, you know, the dynamic of the characters felt much more like uh, an awesome, uh, you know, character performance, which which I really appreciated. I think up until now in the series, the only other time we had some of that was in Goldfinger. Uh, yeah. That, you know, it felt like there was uh, sort of a character ensemble there. Well, I feel like it's, uh, the thing I noticed more this time than ever before was how it's no longer as much an office as it is a family. Um, well, Mark Draco and Teresa are now becoming part of Bond's family, but the people back at MI6 are more of familial types and they are co-workers almost. Uh, everyone's role in this is a far more personal role. I mean, when Money Penny basically saves Bond from quitting and, mm-hmm. and she gets to thank you from M as well, what would I do without you? Those are more like friend friends than and family than than coworkers yeah. or bosses and employees. There's something really emotional there. And of course, the end of the movie, uh, Bond, the, the groom's side is essentially MI6. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're given we're given the parallels of Mark Draco as the father of the bride and essentially M as the father of the groom walking yep. off talking about their previous exploits mm-hmm. and Money Penny gets the hat in a very tearful gentle moment yes, and absolutely. Q is like his uncle giving him yeah, advice absolutely. absolutely. Yes. it's really and so you get the sense that they're a family and, and that's I think partly because Lazenby was new and they decided to make it more human feeling Connery yeah. I don't think would have been able to do that yeah. I don't think yeah. they've been able to make it feel like a family with Connery yeah definitely yeah, I mean, it, it, the characterization is definitely a little different there Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've all always enjoyed this film, and uh, it's one of those where you know, yeah. Well, I mean, watching it again, it's it's not one that gets stale at all, and uh, and it's been interesting. I mean, watching them sort of all in succession this way, um, you know, yeah, certainly coming in. I mean, there was that 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 different feel. I mean, in some ways. Um, you know, you know, Lazenby, you know, you know, kind of, you know, felt, you know, smoother. And there's, you know, there's a little, you know, there's a little more of an, of a sort of twinkle in his eye compared to, you know, sort of Connery's more, you know, sort of straight ahead style, which, which I really liked. Yeah, there was a human, there was human humanity. There was weakness. There was fear. He didn't seem invincible anymore. Yeah. He's a more human kind of character. Yeah. No, it was really, really good. I mean, Lazenby obviously wasn't the best actor in the world. World, but I think he did reasonably well with it in a first performance. Yeah, yeah. for what and, uh, for what they were doing, he told he pulled it off quite well. Yeah, uh, and I think he was helped by having uh, a good director who clearly knew how to deal with him, mm-hmm. and by having some good co-stars as well. Yeah, oh definitely. Uh, you know, it's not often that as uh, a first acting job, which is basically what this was for Lazenby. That you know you end up playing across from people like Telly Savalas and Diana Rigg. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, yeah. one thing I think that, that that didn't necessarily help him was uh, you know they, they, what that, what I didn't quite understand. I mean, especially with this transition going on, was the the shout out you know both in the credit sequence and then after he threatens you know after he thinks he's resigned um, to the previous film. You know, it's like you know why, why were they you know sort of like deliberately reminding everybody of? Well, I think that. Stuff? Say that yes, this is a continuation. Yes, yeah, we're same not guy. starting over. Yeah, it's the same guy. We're not starting over. That's right. Mm-hmm. And there's been even now that people debating the Daniel Craig movies whether it's just a a new guy in the role. And and right. by going back to his past in this last movie, they're mm-hmm. saying no, no, this is the one guy. There's just yeah. the one guy. 
Yeah. They're trying to put a put a stop to that, but this is that was what they were doing here as well. I think they were saying, nope, same guy, just a different actor. And you know, I mean, in the end, at the end of the day, Lazenby proved that the role could be replaced. Sure. And yeah. it made it a little easier, perhaps, the second time Connery left to accept the transition. And now everyone just everyone's used to the fact that there's going to be a new Bond in ten years. That's right. I mean, yeah. We've probably yeah. met him. Uh, I would I will say that this is this probably scared the producers off of ever picking someone completely unknown. And so. They do tend to now pick established actors, perhaps right, not yep. ones that are super famous, but um, established actors. I don't think they'll go the way of the unknown neophyte again. Sure. Yeah. Although, uh, Lazenby no, no. did, sorry. No, no, but no, I was just saying, you know, although it, uh, it does amuse me that, uh, you know, what, one of the people who was offered the role before Lazenby was, was Timothy Dalton, but he felt he was too young and didn't want to, uh, you know, step into Connery's shoes. So. That's right. Yeah. Pretty young then, too. Um, Lazenby did actually play, uh, James Bond one more time. If anyone ever saw the, uh, Return of the Man from Uncle. Uh, right, he, yeah. JB, I think. JB driving an Aston Martin. And <laughs> I think I think there's a line, if I remember it correct, but there's a line where uh, Napoleon Solo says, I haven't seen him since OHMSS. <laughs> oh, and he helps him out in a car chase where some people are trying to kill him. Oh, boy. <laughs> so it was, yeah. It's definitely, I remember yeah. appreciating that immensely when I saw the Return from Man from Uncle movie in the early oh. 80s, which is, of course, a terrible movie, but Absolutely, I, yes. I, I did appreciate that moment in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, the one thing I will say is that, that certainly the uh, you know the 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 end of the pre pre credit sequence was a a wonderful little nod to him stepping in. That, uh, yep. with this trade, this trade never trade. happened to the other fella. Yeah, yeah. and trade, and that trade. was something that they they threw in last minute. It was just something he had been saying. So they said, "Oh, just say that line." Yeah. <laughs> you can. It sort of feels like that because no one would script it like that. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would you acknowledge? You know, you're trying to say that it's still the same guy. Why would, why would you do that? But just, it's like, okay, yeah, stick it in. I'll like the joke. Yeah, and, and I think it works. It works very well. Oh, definitely. It leads, in, it leads into the like the, one of the best title sequences, if not the best. Uh, probably the best combination, if you had to rate them. The song, the music is terrific, and the, song, and the title sequence is terrific. Yeah, so, one of the few times we had an instrumental. Yep, John, uh, Barry, John Barry getting to take the bow in the opening credits. Yeah, I... John Barry decided that uh, trying to put the title on Her Majesty's Secret Service into lyrics would just not work. Uh, and I can't blame him for that decision. Yes. <laughs> A little long. Yeah. So we get a very dramatic and, and really, really powerful piece of music that I've, I've always loved that particular piece of music more than almost any other part of the Bond film series. So that's yeah, this, me. This entire film is very well scored. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to say too much about Nina's Do You Know How Christmas Trees Are Grown? Okay. That, that's a little bit forgettable. <laughs> But <laughs> True. That, that may not be the most memorable song from this movie. But, but of uh, course, Louis Armstrong. Yes, Louis Armstrong, We've Got All the Time in the World, was uh, was uh, a, a special thing to have in there. For sure. Yeah, and the song's gone on to have a life of its own beyond the film, so that's always impressive. Yeah. Yes. In fact, when it, when it, got, when it was big uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago, it got big in Britain and the U.S. again. I mean, I'm sure nobody remember, um, anybody that listened to it then had no idea that it's actually from a James Bond movie from the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was only a couple of years before Louis Armstrong died. 
Yep. So it's used in the middle of the movie as opposed to at the beginning of the movie in what's definitely the only love montage. Well, I don't know. Casino Royale might have had a bit of one, but it's really the only love montage in in any Bond movie. Okay. And uh, it, it really plays to the whole romantic element of this film. This whole film is has a romantic tone that most of the Bond movies do not have. Yes, that's right. And if they're... Once they're doing something like that, I think Diana Rigg was exactly the right person to cast. And this is the, the second time we're getting someone from the Avengers, yep. uh, Diana Rigg very famously having played Emma Peel, um, and went on to do, to do this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, a very important uh, element and something, the strength of her performance and the chemistry that uh, she and Lazenby had, uh, I think was a, a good chunk of what made that sort of much more romantic and love story focused uh, film and themes. You know, that's what that's what made it work. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of ironic. But yeah, I mean, it was done as, as much because Lazenby was the unknown, and uh, you know, so they wanted a you know a, a weightier actress opposite him. And uh, you know, when it kind of shows, got me both here and in in Goldfinger. It's like you know, no, cat, you know, cast good actresses, and it does make the film better as opposed to some of the others that we'll see along the way. Yeah, well, you know, casting experienced uh, actresses as opposed to photo models or, uh, um, you know, beauty contest winner, (laughs) as we've had in some other cases. Yeah. Um, One last cast member we haven't mentioned really is uh, Irma Bunt, of course. Oh, yes. Um, The Blofeld's second in command. And uh, Il Stepat does a real good job of playing this role. Very good comedic performance, but also evil at the same time. Yes. So every time she's on screen, it's a laugh, but it's also she's menacing still. Yes, she's able to to have uh, an element of comic timing without being any less menacing. That's right. Apparently, she actually died just after the film premiered, so this was her last performance. Uh-oh. That's right, yeah. But uh, it was a good one to go out on, I think. Oh, definitely. Yes, that's right. That was uh, um, definitely uh, uh, definitely added a lot of character to it. Uh, and have, having mentioned um, uh, that we, uh, for, for the second time, had uh, a character from the Avengers... Just also mentioned that uh, in a much more minor role, Joanna Lumley was in this, yeah. and she would go on to be the co-star in the new in the new Avengers uh, a few years after this. Yeah. Yes, one one feels bad for Linda Thorson. Yes, Linda <laughs> the Thorson only, does not the only show Avengers up. girl or regular girl. There might have been one at the very beginning I've forgotten about, but right, yeah. yeah, one of the only regular characters in the Avengers never to be in a James Bond movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, which. Uh, yeah, should we mention the girls? Well, there's lots of them. <laughs> there are lots of them, yes. They're all cute. Um, I guess Angela Scular or Scholar as uh, Ruby Bartlett is, mm-hmm. is the one that gets the most screen time and is and does quite well with the job. She's, yeah. again, a very light comic performance. Yeah, the way this fit in was, as well as Bond having his cover story of being Sir Hilary Bray, uh, Blofeld had his own cover story of being the Count de Blochamp. Uh, who was uh, this uh, doctor of a source, I think, who was uh, uh, doing this clinic to cure allergies. And there were these uh, 12 young women, often referred to as those girls for some reason. 
uh, who were uh, part of this, not only being cured, but also being uh, becoming a part of Blofeld's uh, scheme for uh, global destruction and domination. Yeah, most destruction. Yeah. yeah, although all I have to say, Blofeld's plan is is undercut with a serious like sense of humor because the producers allow us to sit in on uh, the director allows us to sit in on some of the brainwashing scenes, which are made as campy as possible, just for laughs. Mm-hmm. Like when Blofeld's like, "You love chickens. Chickens <laughs> are your friends." <laughs> it's it's clearly meant to break the audience up. I'm sure. I'm sure there was plenty of laughs when that that scene was shown in the theaters. Yeah, yeah. Not not to mention the. the the, the psychedelic disco lights on the ceiling. <laughs> uh, right. It's all—it's very funny. It's a nice touch in an otherwise fairly serious movie. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, and Telly Savala can, you know, you know, do that and still be menacing as well. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, it is funny though. You know, when it, when he's Bond is for is first in Ruby's room and this and this starts, you know. But I guess because he has his back to the light, it's not affecting him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's not tar- it's not designed and targeted at him. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, okay, he's immune to it. But um, yeah, but you know, yeah, but, but also, yeah, but but also, I mean, I, I mean, it's another of those elements where you know, yeah, I mean, it, it, they're they're kind of making it obvious that you know, yes, but you know, yes, we have to have the villain. He's got a plot for world domination, but we're not really taking it that serious. <laughs> oh no, we're not. <laughs> We'll never be able to track those girls. Yeah, I think you will. Yeah, yeah, because because even that element, it's like you know, yes, you know, they they do pay lip service to it. It's like yes, Bond does take the pictures of all of them, you know, in in the yeah. end of the final action sequence, you know. So it's implied that yes, okay, we know how to find them. That's right. But I mean, there were other ways too beyond that. Um, yeah. It should be so. It should be said also that uh, one criticism some people might have for this movie is that there isn't a lot of action for the first hour, hour and a half. And that is true. Uh, I think it's really good, good character drama, and it's really well done. And there's but a lot the action, of tension building. And there is well. a lot of tension building. But once the action comes, it's pretty amazing. It's some of the best, um, like lengthy action sequences in any any movie, really, not just a Bond movie. But oh, yeah. the action goes for like a solid 30, 40 minutes mm-hmm. uh, on from skis, cars, ice derbies, mm-hmm. all around various parts of Switzerland, then back on skis for even more spectacular footage. Yeah. All really well shot. Well scored again with the there's a humorous line there's a Blofeld gets to deliver the let's head him we'll head him off at the precipice yeah <laughs> which is again another great line yeah yeah and uh, and yeah and and I did also like I mean that uh, you know both the fact that you know that Blofeld is actually a- actively participating um, you know even even if some of the back green shot you know yes don't look that impressive anymore <laughs> but, yeah that's true and uh, you know but you know but I mean compared to I mean sort of thinking about some of you know Late later action films and even some of the later Bond films, I think you know I like the fact that when he first escapes and he's skiing down the mountain and they're coming after him, you know it's not the thing of where oh he just does a couple of moves and immediately starts taking guys out. It's like no, these are henchmen who are hired to be on the top of a mountain and know how to ski. So you know yes he does get to them eventually, you know, but it does take him it does take work and you know it does take him some time before he can finally finally get away. Um, which I which I thought was was, was nicely done, a nice acknowledgement that you know no these you know these are actually, you know, real henchmen and real criminals who, who do know what they're doing. That's why they were hired. <laughs> so. Yes, absolutely. The, um, the ski sequences and the ski chases in this really are impressive, and they were things that had not been seen in anything else, anything close to this before that, and haven't been uh, paralleled or met very much since then either. They really... Um, 
uh, did some some pretty impressive work on the ski slopes there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Willie Bogner, I think, right, was working on it even then. Willie Bogner did his first uh, his first big thing in in this film. He had been an Olympic skier for was it Norway or Sweden? I think Sweden. Uh, in any case, he was he was Scandinavian and an Olympic skier, and he had done a little documentary where he took a small film camera on uh, a mount he figured out how to use, uh, so he could uh, he could ski downhill while shooting film, and he did some impressive things doing that and was hired for this because of it. Um, He, in fact, had skis that were pointed at both ends, which meant he could ski backwards uh, as quickly as most people could ski forwards. And uh, he was able to keep exactly in position right in front of someone else who was skiing. So he could, uh, he could uh, you know, generate all kinds of interesting uh, uh, perspectives in... um, in footage that was taken, you know, from someone who's actually skiing, and and that was something that was uh, that was very new at the time. Uh, in addition to the fact that they had uh, a number of stuntmen who were sort of expert skier stuntmen. Yeah, no, it 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 raises the level of this movie even higher just by the quality of the work they do. Uh, the other thing they had with the ski sequences, um, uh, Johnny Jordan who was uh, the aerial photographer who was, uh, who was uh, rather severely injured in a helicopter accident on You Only Live Twice. He was back on this, and they had come up with something that I think he was involved in putting together, where he was hanging in a parachute harness that was hanging 18 feet below a helicopter. So he was dangling from a helicopter holding a film camera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a film camera from 1969 was not a small thing. <laughs> no. no, exactly. So, so, and he was able to get basically a 360-degree view, uh, you know, anywhere he wanted looking down. And they got some aerial footage from this that was, I think, a little bit lower than a typical helicopter shot could do. You know, they were able to work it out so it could be fairly low when they wanted it. But they could do some some very impressive stuff uh, with that. Uh, sadly, Johnny Jordan, I think it was uh, the next year, within a year or two, working on, uh, on Cat-22, he died in an aerial filming accident. Oh, you live dangerously. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes it catches up. Uh, uh, there were some very impressive things done with the uh, with the ski sequences with this, for sure. Another great thing in this movie is the uh, the Piz Gloria location shoot, which is uh, an actual restaurant that was being built at the time on top of a Swiss uh, Alp. And uh, they were able to basically help them finish the restaurant. I think they had to do a fair bit of work uh, that to pay for like the cable car and stuff. But they helped them complete the restaurant and in, in, in exchange for being allowed to film there. And again, it's one of the most dramatic sets they've ever had. I mean, those yeah. scenes when they're like at the end, when the helicopters are coming in and Blofeld and Tracer in the Alpine room looking out over the, the, the this visual is incredible. It's a beautiful scene. Oh, absolutely. And they're actually shooting it right there. They're not doing it in that studio. Yeah. 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 Visually, this is uh, quite a remarkable film. Um, you know, and you have the kinds of things you were talking about with uh, the Piz Gloria location, and they have you know people being 
drop, uh, you know, dropped in from a hovering helicopter and going into the snow, into deep snow. You know, you have all these things that, you know, the only way they could they could do them was to actually really do these things. You know, there was a lot of uh, of practical effects and practical stunts in in here, as the Bond series is known for doing a lot of that. But it was uh, particularly impressive in this case. Yeah, and I think I mean compare comparing it to some of the you know, previous, the last couple of films. I mean, the, you know, the, the the underwater sequences in Thunderball kind of suffered from you know, I mean, just being underwater and it's kind of hard to get a sense of what's going on. And uh, even the uh, you know that sort of you know the huge massive assault in You Only Live Twice, I mean, it winds up being kind of dwarfed by the set. And this sequence, you know, it's combination. I think it's a combination of the you know the sort of more compact location and Peter Hunt, Peter Hunt's direction. I mean, you, you know, you, you really got a good sense of the assault, and it, you know, it, it, you know, it really felt felt real, and uh, you know, it's not something you could really follow as they were, you know, c- coming in from these different angles, and you know, coming, you know, through the heliport and dropping the guys, and uh, you know, so it, was, it really felt like a much more dynamic, you know, uh, you know, final battle. Than, yes, uh, the, you than, you had the the speed of people running and being dropped in places, and in the ski sequences the the speed of the the skiing and you know that uh, it gives you some pretty dramatic stuff and then Hunt, Hunt finishes it off with even beyond the assault, he still has one trick up his sleeve. It's the bobsled chase, which completely right. makes you feel like you're in the bobsled with them. Oh, it's yeah. so disorienting. It's like it's like everything is being jumbled. It, it really feels intense. Yeah, it's, it's another great scene. Absolutely. How often would you think of bobsledding as being a, like an action set piece? Yes. It's it's not something you would expect to work well, but it really does. Yeah. And uh, uh, and even beyond that, there was also an avalanche in this. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and ha- the Peter Hunt and the Bond team and the rest of them, how do they film an avalanche? Well, they start an actual avalanche. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, by dropping a few bombs of some sort from a helicopter. And what you see is a very impressive avalanche. True. Uh, and it reminds me, like, there's that Triple X movie, which is like a James Bond parody with Vin Diesel, and it's the worst CGI avalanche. <laughs> it's so hard to believe, but here they were actually doing it for real. Oh yeah, yeah. And even you know, even you know, even if it is sort of stretching plausibility a little bit, but at the same time, I mean, they, you know, the way they sort of establish Bond and Tracy as these sort of master skiers, you know, I mean, you, you, know, you can give them the benefit of the doubt of you know, okay, so they did manage to you know, you know, say enough in front of the way to uh, just get caught in the last bit. <laughs> and I also like that in all this action stuff, there are some nice character moments left in. Um, you know, with uh, uh, Blofeld firing the flares to set off the avalanche. And, you know, it sort of gives you the the idea of, uh, uh, you know, just how little regard he has for everyone and everything else and how yeah. if this is what he needs to do to stop these guys, that's what he'll do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's setting the flare off after sending the three henchmen on to make sure they're <laughs> you know, yeah. ahead, you know, and into the avalanche. You know. That's right. That's the better part. So, yeah, there is some, uh, some pretty impressive stuff in here. And, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of the action pieces there. We've talked about uh, the, uh, the wedding sequence. So we should talk a little bit about the ending. Yeah. Which, uh, 
which was uh, was a big moment. This is uh, this was the film where Bond, you know, Bond gets married. Uh, you know, we had a very nicely played proposal scene and everything. Yeah. Um, and we we know in this series we can't have Bond uh, as as a married man. And uh, of of course Tracy after uh, after the after the wedding is killed. Yeah. yeah, and I was reading how Peter Hunt had originally thought maybe they could do it uh, at the beginning of the next movie and, and have leave people with a happy ending now and then start the next movie off with her, her death. You can see the cut point where that would have been done. Oh, yeah. Where it, the camera pans up to see the flowers and it would have been a fade to credits moment. Yeah. You can yeah. see that. But uh, they did not do that. And I guess we should mention that Mike Myers did that. He, he went and did that when he did his Austin Powers movies. <laughs> Because at the end of the first movie, I think uh, Mike Myers marries the Vanessa Kensington character, very Emma Peel-like, uh, yep. played by uh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Hurley. And then in the Hurley. beginning, the very first scene of the next movie, she's revealed to be an f- evil fembot, and he has to destroy her. <laughs> it's probably the only good thing in the second movie, but they were basically riffing on the whole, the, the exact same thing that Peter Hunt was going to do. Yep. Yeah, and it gave you um, a, a scene where you see of Blofeld and Irma Bunt getting away. Uh, and, you know, we had seen um, uh, Blofeld, you know, getting, getting pinned, you know, pinned in the fork of, uh, of a tree on the, uh, the bobsled run. But you, uh, you here see, uh, you know, Blofeld and Irma Bunt driving off. I like the fact that Blofeld ha- uh, was in a neck race. <laughs> At that point, uh, I thought yeah, that they... was uh, a nice little touch that, you know, yeah, that, you know, that did actually hurt. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and of course, it's, uh, it's Irma Bunt who fires the shots and Tracy is killed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and I mean it. it I mean it, it is a. I mean a very affecting sequence. I mean I, I think both you know through the, the the way they handled the wedding itself, and then you know it then just sets up you know having this sort of, you know the this you know what I, basically I think, you know the the, the only tr- tragic end to to one of the Bond films, but it uh, you know I think it's, it's very affecting, and I I know it you know, it always leaves a lump in my throat, even though I know it's coming. Yeah, Lazenby played that very well. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, for all the criticisms of his acting, which I don't really accept, I do think he does, you know, does a, a fine job through most of the film, but especially in that in that final little shot, um, you know, cradling her and uh, you know, and just repeating again. We have, yeah, we have which all... Connery would not be able to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would have been the relationship with Tracy in the end of the film. I, I don't know how they would have done that with Connery. As he had been playing Bond, it would have been difficult to do that. And I know this book was something that they had planned to do earlier uh, in the in the series. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, it it would have been difficult to you know to take Connery in the established role and do um, that sort of ending and that sort of relationship. So um, I think we've covered most of the. Uh, the interesting things here. I think we should uh, maybe mention that uh, this was a very gadget light movie for a Bond film. Um, this was something that uh, you know they had been 
building up the level of gadgetry uh, more and more. And then yeah. in this film, you had, uh, you know, the previous film, you had the whole little Nelly sequence where, uh, you know, Bond had the little heavily armed hit helicopter and so on. Uh, and now we're in, you know, this film was something where really they didn't do much with gadgets in it, which worked just fine, actually. Yeah, in fact, I was I was watching it again, and the um, the only real gadget in the movie may be Blofeld's little kits that he sends the girls away with, with their little mini radios and their mm-hmm. death atomizers. And I yeah. remember thinking, wow, that's cool. I'd like to have one of the like <laughs> the little yeah. radio, it, little turn the dial and the, the antenna pops up. There was mm-hmm. the safe cracker photocopier gadget too. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> in, prob- in what is probably the most boring scene in the movie, but yeah. in fact, it's so boring. Bond reads. Playboy jury. <laughs> right. You know, well, it was to... it was a tension scene though. I yeah, I, I like that scene for the tension. No, it was a good scene with the tension and the Playboy magazine was a good icebreaker. Too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. Although I w- always wondered if the lawyer ever noticed his uh, gatefold was missing. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was just reading it for the article, probably. Of oh, course, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, so, uh, final thoughts on Her Majesty's Secret Service. What did you think? Uh, I uh, in, enjoy, enjoyed it greatly. Always have, and um, I mean the, the 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 one thing actually one thing we didn't touch on that much was I mean in addition to sort of the change in uh, you know sort of Bond's portrayal with Lazenby in the in some of the production design um, it was like you know we're getting to the later sixties and there's sort of like sort of like more bold colors like especially in the in the, the early sequences like in the casinos um, and it's actually one thing that I've always thought that you know that uh, you know didn't necessarily serve Lazenby that well is that some of the fashion choices may have been perfectly in tune with the times, but that like that the overly frilly tuxedo shirt and whatever that thing is he's wearing at the uh, at uh, the birthday party, you know, just seems you know, you know maybe you know, may a, a a little too fashion conscious. For, he he for does Bob. get he yeah. does get a lot of costumes in this movie, including he gets to play the whole uh, what does a Scotsman wear under his kilt joke as well. Oh, yeah, yes. Or, yes. An- another good line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's really just in the early sequences i mean certainly you know given the scottish heritage i mean him him pulling up pulling out the kilt you know <laughs> made sense to me but, uh, you know but it was sort of you know it, it was sort of going along with you know as i was watching it this time and sort of you know thinking they, you know, there were certain things that were sort of you know not working in his favor at the, at the beginning of the movie <laughs> so did he did he pass the frilly shirt to john pertwee for the next year yeah. <laughs> well, for me, as for me, uh, this was always my favorite James Bond movie when I was younger. Certainly, when I first saw them all, like mostly through TV, this was the one that stood out. Uh, it's also it's the most different from all the other ones, so mm-hmm. therefore it's unique and it's the most clearly the most intelligent, the most adult, the least silly of the Bond movies, and it pulls off everything really well. Music is great. The scenes are great. The acting and the direction are all great. And and I think it's still my favorite Bond movie, probably. Although there have been a few in the last couple of years that have come along to add add to that. But I still think this may be the best one. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'll say that it's one of it's one of my all time favorites as well. It has a lot of strong elements to it. I like the fact that uh, Tracy is such a focal character, and she has. A journey where she's coming from this very low place at the at the beginning and you know being suicidal and sort of really you know coming through to something uh, to to something better and uh, uh, you know forging that relationship with Bond 
and you know Vaughn sort of carrying uh, uh, carrying things with the plot as well. So there were some really nice character things there that you don't usually get in the Bond films, as well as a lot of great fun with the typical Bond types of things as well. So yeah, I'll also say this is uh, definitely uh, a very good one and one of my favorites. So thanks for listening. This is Brian. Take care, folks. Goodbye. Good night. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on Device of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.